Sometimes people wonder what purpose prayer serves. After all, God is sovereign. He's going to do what he's going to do. So why bother praying? I think this episode helps to answer that because we see here that God does move. He wants to be moved. He intends to be moved in response to Abraham's petition, but he will only move so far. Ultimately, his will will be done. And ultimately, Abraham needs to return to his place. So does prayer move God? Yes, but only because he wants it to. Can prayer make God do what he does not want to do? Can prayer force God to do something that is outside his will? No. God decides how far he will move, and God decides when the intercession must cease. There is a sense, then, in which prayer is about moving God. And there is also a sense in which prayer is about agreeing with God. We see both in this story. And we learn both. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. Does prayer move God? If God is sovereign and if God knows the end from the beginning, then why does the Bible command us to pray? How could prayer make any difference? We wonder that sometimes as believers, but as we learn in this story, prayer works because God wants it to work. He wants us to partner with him in the outworking of his purpose. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Genesis chapter 18. This story happens just a few months after the events recorded in Genesis 17. We know that because Sarah is unaware that she is pregnant. And in Genesis 17, 21, God said that she would have a baby within the year. There are two things going on in this story. First of all, God is concerned to bring Sarah to a place of faith. Being married to a believer isn't enough. God wants her to believe for herself. Secondly, there is the matter of including Abraham in the coming judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. If circumcision is a sign that the covenant people are a kingdom of priests, as we suggested in the last chapter, then it is time for Abraham to begin assuming the roles and responsibilities associated with that calling. Priests talk to people on behalf of God and to God on behalf of people. And we see Abraham doing that in this chapter. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. Now, it is tempting to view this as an early appearance of the Trinity. Most scholars understand the three visitors as Yahweh with two attendants, two angels or two heavenly servants. And throughout the narrative, the one character is treated as distinct from the other. So I think it best not to actually think of this as an early appearance of the Trinity. I think it is the Lord, Yahweh, with two angelic attendants. It's a remarkable passage regardless. God visits Abraham in human form. Certainly this is an anticipation of the incarnation, and certainly this is a sign of God's intention to be intimately involved with the covenant community. Verse 2 goes on to say, When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. 
Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourself under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Eastern hospitality is very elaborate, and most of what we see here continues to be characteristic of Bedouin culture and custom even to this day. Nevertheless, Abraham is certainly aware of the unusual dignity and majesty of his visitors, as the ensuing dialogue makes clear. Verse 9, they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the next tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the door of the tent behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Here we learn that Sarah has not believed in the promises of God. God was very clear back in chapter 17 that she would have a child. In Genesis 17, 21, God said, I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. God said very clearly that Sarah will have a son. His name will be Isaac, and it will happen within the year. But Sarah here in chapter 18 laughs at the ridiculous suggestion that she will have a child. Now, there are only two possible explanations for that. Number one, Abraham never told her about it. Or number two, Abraham told her, but she didn't believe it. The fact that God rebukes Sarah here and not Abraham tells us where the problem lies. Verse 13 says, The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. Here we see that God is not content with partial faith in a family. He wants every member of the family to believe in the God of the promises. Sarah is married to a believer, but she isn't one herself. And God is working on that. And I imagine that many people who are listening today find that encouraging. Thanks be to God. Pastor Paul, I want to jump in here because as you say, I imagine that many of our listeners do find that encouraging, but they also may have a follow-up question or two. At this point in the story, Abraham is a person of faith. He is believing in the promises, but his wife Sarah is not. She thinks this is all just a little ridiculous. She literally laughs at the suggestion that she will bear a child in her old age. I imagine that many people out there have experienced something similar in their own life. They have a spouse or a parent or a child who thinks that what they believe is ridiculous. They only believe what their eyes can see or what science can prove, and that creates tension and heartache in their family. What is this passage saying that should give these people a reason to hope for something better in the future? Well, I think the main thing it is saying is that God is not content with a half-saved family. He wants to see faith spread to each and every member of the family, 
And that isn't a passive desire. Here we see God coming and beginning to work and stimulate faith in Sarah's heart. So I think that should be very encouraging. Quite often, God saves one member of a family so as to reach and save the rest. He begins to do a work and to tell a story through the life and faith of one member that begins to envelop and include all the others. And we're going to see that later in this story as well. In the next generation, God, once again, is not content merely to have the faith and trust of Isaac. He's working on Rebecca as well, once again, through the issue of childbearing. And then we'll see the same thing repeated in the next generation with Jacob and with his wives, Rachel and Leah. In all three of these stories, we see God working wider than merely the heart and faith of the patriarch. God wants the whole family to be united in faith and trust in him. So he is working through the one to reach the many. So if any of our listeners are that one, they are the first or the only one in their family at this point to have faith. What advice can you give them in terms of how to spread that faith to other members of their household? Well, that's a great question. And it is one, thankfully, that appears to have been asked a lot in the early days of the church. So it is addressed in an authoritative way in multiple places in the New Testament. The Apostle Peter, for example, in 1 Peter 3, 1 to 6, says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if they do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening, closed quote. So Peter actually references our story, the story we're reading in Genesis 18, when he talks about Sarah calling Abraham my Lord, which he does in Genesis 18, verse 12. Peter is sort of making an, an inverse point here. He is saying, if Sarah could respect her husband, even though she didn't share his faith, Maybe you can win your husband if you respect him, even if he doesn't share your faith. The point is that good conduct is itself a good argument. If your husband or your wife or your kids see the power of God changing who you are at the level of your most intimate relationships, that will make a powerful impression on them. Because we always say people don't change. So if they do change, we tend to be curious about the reason why. So Peter says, let your loved ones see your transformed character. Let God work on you and let God work in them. And then let the witness and the testimony flow from there. So it really isn't about saying the right things. It's more about living the right way and letting your transformed character stir up curiosity. Well, saying the right thing is important, but sometimes living the right way is what opens the door for us to say the right thing. So that and prayer, because we see here in the story of Abraham's family, it is always God who is the main actor in the conversion of family members. No one in the story is argued or nagged into a position of faith. I think it's helpful for us to see that. It is always God orchestrating circumstances and speaking into hurt and confusion and despair 
that does the heavy lifting. All right, I love that. Let's jump into our story again at verse 16. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Verse 19 is so helpful in seeing again the paradox of the covenant. As we have said, there is a sense in which the covenant is unconditional because God has guaranteed both sides. But there is also a sense in which it is very conditional because God will only release blessings through obedience. Look again at the words in verse 19 and listen for grace and law, unconditional and conditional. Listen for that tension. All right. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Do you hear that? God has chosen Abraham, that's grace, that he may command, that's law right? Abraham and his family must do righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham and through Abraham what he has promised. You can hear the conditional and the unconditional woven together. God has promised, he's guaranteed back in Genesis 15, but he's also clear that before those blessings can be released, there needs to be an obedient vessel. Now listen, if it weren't for what we know about Jesus in the New Testament, This sentence in verse 19 would be borderline incoherent, theologically speaking, right? How can this all go together? How can something require certain conditions and be guaranteed? How can God do it, but only if we do what he requires us to do? That wouldn't make any sense if not for Jesus Christ, God with us and God for us, fully God and fully man doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. The Bible only makes sense when you get to Jesus Christ. Now, of secondary importance, but obviously I think still important, is the word here about parental responsibility within the covenant community. Listen again to verse 19. I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. God often saves one in order to reach many, right? Let me say that better. God often saves a parent in order to save a family. And I think there is a lesson in there for us on how to evangelize. We often target children, and there's nothing wrong with that. Let the little children come to me, Jesus said. But I think the wider pattern suggests that we ought to target parents. Specifically, we ought to target fathers so that they can command their children and their household after them to keep the way of the Lord. If you reach a father, you generally get the whole family. But if you just reach a child, it's very hard for that child to reach their family or to disciple themselves. We jump back into the story of verse 20. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. We stumble sometimes over the anthropomorphisms of the Bible. Right? I mean, what does it mean for God to go down and see? Can't God see everything? Isn't God everywhere? 
This is just an example of what scholars call divine accommodation. God speaks to us in ways and in forms and terms that we can understand. Derek Kidner says here, Stripped of its bold coloring, this saying of the Lord declares his judgments well-weighed and perfectly informed. So what God is saying here is that before he judges anyone, he takes his time and he considers all the evidence carefully. I think that's important for us to know. Verse 22 says, So the men returned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed swipe away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked? Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. And again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, O Lord, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham. And Abraham returned to his place. There are many things, no doubt, that we can learn from this exchange. But chief among them must be something about the nature of intercessory prayer. Here it is helpful to remember that this entire dialogue was initiated by God. He wanted Abraham to speak to him about these things. He wanted Abraham to wrestle with issues of justice and mercy. He wanted Abraham to ask him to move. But he also wanted Abraham to trust in his final decision. And I think that is very helpful to see. Sometimes people wonder what purpose prayer serves. After all, God is sovereign. He's going to do what he's going to do. So why bother praying? I think this episode helps to answer that because we see here that God does move. He wants to be moved. He intends to be moved in response to Abraham's petition. But he will only move so far. Ultimately, his will will be done. And ultimately, Abraham needs to return to his place. So, does prayer move God? Yes, but only because he wants it to. Can prayer make God do what he does not want to do? Can prayer force God to do something that is outside his will? No. God decides how far he will move, and God decides when the intercession must 
cease. There is a sense then in which prayer is about moving God. And there is also a sense in which prayer is about agreeing with God. We see both in this story. And we learn both in the journey of faith. Thanks be to God. Pastor Paul, one of the things I found interesting about this story is being able to see behind the curtain, as it were, into God's motivation for including Abraham in this part of the story. It sort of reads like a kind of Old Testament, take your kid to work day kind of thing. God wanted to include Abraham in this process more for Abraham's benefit than his own. Yeah, that's exactly right. Verse 17 has God saying to himself, but obviously also to us as readers, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. So you're absolutely right. This is like take your kid to work day. God wants Abraham to start thinking about issues of justice and mercy and how those things should be balanced in the administration of human affairs on the earth. Remember, God is rebooting the human story through the family of Abraham. And human beings originally were supposed to be ruling creatures. We were supposed to be under God and over everything else. So if we're going to fulfill that role then we need to think well and wisely about justice and mercy. So God knew what he was going to do all along, but he wanted Abraham to wrestle through it and to petition him for mercy, a mercy he was already prepared to give if there were indeed 10 righteous people in the city? Yeah, it certainly looks that way. Abraham doesn't school God in this story. That isn't what happens. God was already intending to act in a just and fair manner. He wasn't going to destroy the righteous along with the wicked. God is a fair and careful judge. He's not going to wipe whole countries off the map on Judgment Day. He's going to separate people carefully like a shepherd separates sheep from goats. Jesus said that. So God was always going to be fair here, but he wanted Abraham to think about what was fair and to petition him for what was fair. And at the end of the day, there weren't 10 righteous people in the city, so the point was moot but the exercise itself was profitable. There was only Lot and his family, so God sent angels to escort them out of the city before the judgment fell. We'll get into that in the next episode. But what we see here is Abraham learning his role as an intercessor. Which raises the question we began with at the start of this episode, does prayer actually change things? Is prayer about getting us to the place where we agree with God, or does prayer actually move God? Well, I think the answer would have to be both. Prayer is about getting us to the place where we agree with God. Jesus modeled that for us in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. That's Matthew 26, 39. But then he went and prayed a second time. That's in Matthew 26, 42. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. So Jesus prayed his way to full and total surrender to the father's will. That's a huge part of what prayer is and how it functions. But also, on the other hand, the Bible says that sometimes ye have not because ye ask not, James 4, 2. 
So prayer does actually work. It works because God wants it to work. He wants to release blessings into the world through the prayers of his believing and obedient children. So God ordains the ends, and he also ordains the means. And prayer is one of the primary means by which God does his work of redemption and restoration in the world. So prayer moves us, and prayer moves God, because God wants and wills for it to do so. That's an incredibly helpful insight. I love that, and I can't wait to hear more about that as this story continues. As always, if you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that at intotheword.ca. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 